This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In her new book, The Age of American Unreason, our guest today, Susan Jacoby, paints a disturbing portrait of a mutant strain of public ignorance, anti-rationalism, and anti-intellectualism that has developed over the past four decades and now threatens the future of American democracy. Jacoby is the program director of the Center for Inquiry in New York. Her last book, Free Thinkers, A History of American Secularism, was acclaimed as one of the most notable books of 2004. Susan Jacoby, welcome back to Weekly Signals. Nice talking to you again. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Hey, you're in New York? I'm in New York, and I'm on my way to California tomorrow. <laughs> what are you going to do out here? The L.A. Times Book Fair. Oh, very good. So that, in part, explains your editorial in this week's L.A. Times? Uh, no. <laughs> it, was just, it was just time for me to say those things. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you there at the bookstore. That's always a great event for Los Angeles. Right. Although it it uh, causes me some pain, they 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 have Henry Winkler is the the poster child for the uh, book fair. Is that right? They, yeah. Oh. They, they have people. Oh dear. Yeah. This is what I'm talking about. I, exactly. That's that's why I brought it up. I thought it's oh, it's so funny. Really? Well, they have a lot of people. When you look at the L.A. Times and the ads for the L.A. Times, you know, you know that they include in their supplement, you see mainly people that you don't know as. Free thinkers <laughs> and authors. Well, you know, well I mean, Los Angeles is the capital of the infotainment industry. Well, yeah, Los yeah, Angeles well, and New York. So, well, I'm sure we, we'll apologize for that right uh, now. Well, Get that out well, of the way. Henry's a fine man. I'm sure. He'll yeah, he's a fine man. <laughs> so anyway, but, uh, anyways, <laughs> that that editorial this Sunday. You said that uh, I'm going to quote you right here. Whether watching television news, consulting political blogs, or more rarely reading books. Americans today have become a people in search of validation for opinions that they already hold. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it applies to American unreason? Well, it's, it's, one, of, it's one of the ironies, and it's one of the things that's really happened really in the last 20 years is we have an unprecedented array of choices for information. We have hundreds of cable channels, uh, everything there is on the web. And ironically, this is really part of the law of unintended consequences, this has led a lot of people simply to narrow their focus and look at and read things that they already agree with. In other words, not not to go and, and take a look at, you know, opposing opinions. And as a lecturer, for instance, I find this all the time. Anytime I walk into a lecture hall, I can guarantee that 95% of the people in the room will already agree with me. <laughs> and conservatives report exactly the same experience. This is not healthy for democracy, and it's part of the dumbing down of our culture. It mm -hmm. was not always true in the 19th century Tens of thousands of Americans went to hear people like Thomas Huxley, who is the popularizer, the great British naturalist of Darwin's theory of evolution, even though they were genuinely disturbed at a time when people were much more religious than they are now about his views. But there, there is an old American tradition of wanting to think for yourself and see whether the devil really has horns, that we really, you know, when we seek out sources of information that agree with what we already think, we're not really doing much thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, I have a personal question. Do you bowl? 
No. <laughs> I, I'm just bringing that up because in this presidential <laughs> campaign. Okay, up. good, good. <laughs> do you fish? <laughs> do, do you hunt? Do you drink beer? <laughs> Now, is, actually, actually, none of the above. I uh, hate beer. Uh, <laughs> but, but, I, but I'm also not a white wine drinker. Uh, I go. do drink. I drink single malt scotch is what I drink. Well, oh, there well, you that's go. good to know. Uh, a, a very elitist drink. <laughs> yeah. uh, but look at this. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, look, the, look at the ridiculous spectacle in the Democratic primary yeah. of one candidate a graduate of Harvard Law School and a former editor of the Harvard Law Review, the other a graduate of Yale Law School, arguing over which of them is the more elitist mm-hmm. and, 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 and trying to prove that you're somehow one of the boys or one of the girls by dropping your G's when you talk and, yeah. <laughs> and, and calling everybody folks. One of the things I say in my book is you will never find presidents using that word before 1980. I mean, just think about the Gettysburg Address, that this government of the folks, by the folks, yeah. and for the folks shall not perish from the earth. It, that gives you an idea of what the debasement of language and knowledge means in terms of public discourse. Well, shouldn't we blame Garrison Keillor in part for that, though? Oh. Shouldn't we blame who? Garrison Keillor. Uh, his popularity had a lot to do with being folksy. And I'm I'm wondering if if uh, if no, there is. No, well, actually, I wouldn't blame Garrison Keillor for okay. it. Uh, first of all, folks is a perfectly proper word for casual colloquial language. And in the part of the country where Garrison Keillor comes from, in in the Midwest and particularly in rural areas, as in the South, folks was part of the you know the currency of everyday speech. Mm-hmm. But one of the different and there's nothing wrong with that. One of the differences, though, is that there was always and. This this was part of education in our country. The language that you necessarily used in the schoolyard in the bar wasn't the language that was considered appropriate for a public speech or for writing a paper. Yes. And this is, in fact, one of the things that people need to learn in school. That there are all kinds of ways to use language, and you can you can use language you can use language to try to elevate people, or you can use language to try to say I'm just one of you. Garrison Keillor is a radio person. He is not running for the presidency of the United States. And he wouldn't say to the Pope, awesome speech. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Probably <laughs> not. Uh, uh, speaking of which, you, you, you brought in the, the Gettysburg Address. Um, what do you think, uh, and let's try to give this sort of some historic context, and that is Abraham Lincoln. If Abraham Lincoln were running for president today, what, do you, what would you give his odds, what would you give his chances of actually being even nominated at this point? Well, poor. First of all, nobody nobody who looks like Abraham Lincoln, which is to say he's not very telegenic, seems to have wouldn't have been very telegenic, seems to have a chance today. But but more when you look at the background of Lincoln's election, you look at the Lincoln Douglas debates about slavery in eighteen fifty eight, and you think that 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 thousands of people heard those debates all across the state of Illinois, and they stood there for five hours hearing those men talk about one issue, slavery. When you compare that to the level of debate we have today, it's pretty sickening. But let's not even talk about that far past. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about, as I do in my book, Franklin D. Roosevelt's fireside chats. Yeah. 
he spent a lot of time in the late 1930s, and and 85% of Americans would gather to hear. He talked for as long as 45 minutes, trying to educate people who didn't want to hear it about the stake of America in the future of Europe and what would happen in a world dominated by Japanese and German fascism. This was not an easy sell to Americans in the 1930s. Uh, we don't we don't very often these days have politicians who do anything more than tell us but what we want to hear. But but I think that to blame, well, a lot of pundits talk about the political culture as if it's different from the culture as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's more a reflection of it. I can't tell you how many left-wing talk show hosts have asked me, don't you think George Bush is responsible for the dumbing down of America? No, I do not. I think that we elected a president who has ignorant and proud of it stamped on his forehead is a reflection of where we are as a culture. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think George Bush is smart enough to be responsible yeah. for the dumbing down of America. You know, it's easy to talk about politicians instead of looking at the man in the mirror, you know, who's watching an average of seven hours of TV a day, if you count the weekends. Uh, what about us? <laughs> yeah. We're speaking with Susan Jacoby. The book is The Age of American Unreason. Um, speaking of looking at us, aren't you encouraged that there was uh, such an outcry regarding ABC's uh, Pennsylvania debate last week, that people were fed up with that kind of uh, give and take. Yes, I was. Uh, And I think it's the first time in recent memory that so many so many ordinary viewers spoke out and were disgusted by it. And that debate happened to have a, a larger audience than most. I was encouraged by that. And, and I, don't, I don't think all is lost by any means. I'm, I'm encouraged. I, I have gotten thousands of emails from young parents uh, because I have a lot to say in my book about the commercial push to, to get video extended into the bedrooms of infants under the age of two years. And I have had a lot of emails from young parents who are concerned about the balance. In other words, not the kind of people who who take a line, which is not my line, that no kids should ever watch TV or videos. That's ridiculous. You have to live in the world in which you live. But, but, But parents who want to make sure that their kids get started on reading and listening to poetry first rather than watching videos. And there are more people out there who are concerned about this than I thought there were. I thought, frankly, my book would be usual... A critical success commercial flop, but it's really selling very well, and I'm astonished. It's, it suggests to me that there are a lot of people out there who are really seriously concerned about everything from the state of our educational system to this our utter dependency on video world. It, it, do you think we have in some way intellectually hit bottom with with <laughs> with uh, with uh, with I mean with Bush? I hope <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm saying this because you, you said Bush isn't responsible, but he is the byproduct of of what I consider to be decades of willful ignorance on the part of the American public, politi- particularly in the realm of politics. And that we, I hope that we may have hit a point where everyone recognizes that this anti-intellectualism, this sort of I don't, I'm American and I don't care attitude, has had real consequences as we look around the world, uh, the, the policies that have been implemented. Do you agree with that or not? Well, uh, I hope so, but I don't know if we've hit bottom. I do believe that the video culture and the amount of time that we spend on trivia, whether it's watching watching people trash their spouses on YouTube and play out their divorces, or uh, or or just watching just watching TV. And by the way. Uh, 
Uh, one of the things I wanted to do in this book was start a conversation about how we spend our time. Unless we become more aware of how we spend our time, nothing can change. So I don't know if we've hit bottom. Mm -hmm. I also have a lot of people come up to me and say, I would like to read, but I don't have the time. Well, how is it that young men under 25 have three hours a day to play video games, but they don't have the time to read? That's a choice. And I think one of the things that we have to get out is this passive mode. Oh, poor little me, what can I do with video world and audio world all over me? People can change the way they spend their time. And it doesn't have to be an either-or thing. You don't have to give up the web to read more. You have to spend more time reading and less time on the web. That's all. It's not, it's not a matter of one thing is bad and the other thing is good. But there is no way. I've been accused of being a technophobe, and that's not true, and accused of ignoring reading on the Internet. People don't read on the Internet as reading is traditionally thought of. What we're all doing on the Internet is we're swooping down like vultures for little bits of information that we want. You do it, I do it. Anybody knows who reads books that it's a completely different experience reading offline and, quote, reading, unquote, online. Reading online is a shortcut for most of us. Yeah, that's true. Uh, a great shortcut. Yeah, it, well, at times, <laughs> especially when you're trying to stay abreast of what is going on in the world with the the breadth of things that are going on, it, it is difficult uh, unless we, and the Internet has provided us with an opportunity and a means to be able to stay somewhat informed about uh, about what is going on in the world. You know what? You you can you can be somewhat informed, somewhat informed about what's going on in the world. You can spend an hour looking 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 over various newspapers from around the world right. and such. But but the hours you if you spend five hours doing that, when for example you could be reading a good book in depth about some issue, you're not spending your time well. We aren't spending our time yeah. well. Yeah. And when we when we put kids in front of videos for three hours a day, we're not. We're not spending our time well. It's great to come home at the end of a work day, put a three-year-old in front of a video for an hour so you can have an adult conversation with the person you live with. Right. The problem is when that hour extends into two, three, four. It's, in other words, what I'm talking about is, is a rather old-fashioned notion, which is moderation. And, and what we've done is we've, we've, we've also we've told ourselves lies. We've, lies. we've said computers are making us smarter. No, they're not. That's like saying somebody in the 15th century, forks are making us better eaters. <laughs> forks just enabled us to eat without getting grease all over our hands and faces. Computers enable us to access information in a more efficient way. Mm -hmm. But that information isn't worth much if it doesn't go with a broader body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been saying, though, and I think you're... you're putting the blame on people, and, and people need to have the blame. But isn't there also a, a perfect storm of stupidity going on right now with the technology being, sure. being so seductive? Sure. Uh, people haven't really gotten any dumber uh, in and of themselves. They're, they're being so distracted that they're driven into these areas. And, and, and I, I would ask, how, how do we get out of those areas? You turn it off for part of the day. Uh, that's you know I, I I no one no one is more critical of the media than I am. Uh, I think I think the media the media is both dumbed down by the culture and is a dumber down of the culture. Again, it's a it's a circular process. 
But to say to say that people don't have any choices because it's there is is like saying that 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 people don't have any choice about whether they're going to be a drunk or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is there are all kinds of people who are alcoholics who don't drink because it's bad for them. In many ways, you know, I think that 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 overindulgence in the media. The media isn't like alcohol because you don't have to turn it off altogether, but you do have to do less of it. And one of the things that we do is we choose the easiest route. Yes, it is easier to think you're informing yourself by going to some website than by sitting down and reading a 300-page book, but you're not. And the more we lie to ourselves about that, the video industry for little kids is a great example of it. They try to sell now television for babies, not just toddlers, but babies, to upper-middle-class parents who who really know they're doing something wrong when they plant their kid in front of a TV set. But what they tell them is it's okay if it's educational. It's not okay if you're not talking to your parent and your parent isn't talking to you. If you're, it's not okay if you're getting all of your entertainment passively from video instead of, say, a parent reading you a story or, or reciting a poem before you go to bed. But it's very, it is seductive, you're right, uh, and it enables us to lie to ourselves about what we're doing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we're speaking of Susan Jacoby. The book is The Age of American Unreason. I want to, um, speaking of the culture and TV and, and, and these things, um, I'm going to bring in one of my, my favorites, uh, Stephen Colbert. Do you think the fact that he, is, is he blurring this distinction, this fine line between satire and what the dumbing down of the culture with his character, where he is so willfully ignorant as to, as to sort of shine a light on this? Or do you think people are sitting there sort of taking it in uh, at its face value? Uh, I'm going to be on the Colbert Report tonight, That's... actually. So <laughs> there you go. I, I would kind of like to pass on that question just, just because they don't like to have guests commenting on the show. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, if you ask uh, me that question tomorrow, I'll answer it. All right. Okay. Well, <laughs> a little bit of Colbert censorship here. How, how about... No, 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 no. No, no, no. We don't know. That's it's not... Just that, it's just that I wouldn't want to be okay. seen as promoting a show just because I'm going to be on it. Gotcha. Okay. Then, gotcha. then hypothetically, say that you're on The Daily Show. <laughs> Well, <laughs> no, I'm not going to be. Okay, <laughs> but but just say uh, John Stewart. Th- does does he uh, blur the line so that people can take real information more lightly, or does is he really helping people see the absurdity of of uh, what they're being told? Well, uh, this is a personal opinion. I think he's helping people see the absurdity. I I, I regard the Daily Show as, as as sort of a modern version of the old Monty Python series, mm-hmm. yeah. which I, yes. I think I I don't th- I don't think anybody intelligent takes those things at face value. I, th- I, think one, I think one of the things that I thought about the pythons that were brilliant far back and that I think, you know, that, that I like about the kind of comedy that The Daily Show embodies is that uh, it just, in a way, it casts a light on the inanity of what you see on the regular networks every day. Right. And, I mean, one of, the things, one of the things that I think that show does is it makes you, sometimes I'll be looking, I'll be looking at so-called mainstream news and it will seem just as funny to me as The Daily Show. Yeah. And I realize that's because so, li- so few questions are being asked. It's, all, it's such a very, very surface thing. Yeah. When, I get, when I get up and I turn on The Today Show, and who is the co-host of The Today Show this There's morning? Ma- Laura Bush oh. and her twin daughters. <laughs> oh, my God. What? I, I have nothing against Laura Bush and her twin daughters and the children's book that, that they have apparently written together. But, but where are we when, when, when a, a show 
show that it's supposed supposed to at least have some informational content turns over an hour to the wife of the president to host. What is that about? Mm. That, I mean, that looked like pure Daily Show to me, like something the Daily Show would have made up. Well, uh, I would be... I, I don't see how you could satirize <laughs> I, that show. I, yeah, exactly. I would be not too surprised to find out that they'll make some comment about that, if not tonight, tomorrow night. That, that's the, th- uh, the th- You couldn't make any... You couldn't say anything well, funnier well, about it than the thing itself was. And not to, not to spend too <laughs> and much... did you know that, that the Bush twins used to call themselves the womb Mates? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, so, that's vital so information. How, no, that is vital. How, how can you satirize stuff like that? Well, no, I, and not to spend too much time on the Daily Show, but I think I think really. No, yeah, but your question your question is right. Uh, well, in the in that this constant blurring of entertainment and yeah. information is something that all of the media do. But 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 the, in the mainstream media, I don't think people really realize it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was just going to say about the Daily Show. It's often perceived as a politically satirical show, a, so, a satire about politics. But in fact, it's really its most effective satire is about the media. It's about itself in some manner. Yeah, well, absolutely, and, and absolutely. So, and when we in the media have a lot to answer for. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Not be- you. Not no, me. No, well, I, yeah, I have a lot to answer <laughs> for. It might not be about the media. But. <laughs> We're speaking with Susan Jacoby. The book is The Age of American Unreason. What do you say when people call you an elitist? Uh, I don't mind. I, oh, yeah? I, you know, I would, I would, I would hope uh, that this is this is this is just a stupid word. It's become come a synonym for anybody, anybody who knows a lot and who tries to know a lot. You know what I would say is is that you don't is is that uh, all kinds of people. It's not. It sh- it shouldn't be a bad word. See, this is a political word. Also, it also means not just not just that you know a lot, but that your views aren't like mine. Right. Uh, that that's one of the the word elitist has generally been used from a right position to say i'm not like you know they're not like ordinary people yeah. uh but as far as learning goes if i if i do belong to an elite group uh which i wouldn't say there are plenty of people who know a lot more than i do but if i do i would be proud of it i want to know as much as i can i love ideas i love books i love uh i love reading i love the past uh, I, I i really laugh when people on the religious right call me an elitist, and then I, and then I then I read that half of Americans in the supposedly most religious country on earth can't name the four gospels. <laughs> well, yeah. Now, 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 is, this is or this, the Ten Commandments. For the, that. The, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the Ten Commandments. I, I, this is to me. Thou shalt watch seven hours of TV a day. That, that's that's the eleventh commandment. But uh, that that this seems to me to be an uh, an attempt to hijack the language in the same way Absolutely. that the right wing was was able to turn. Uh, liberal into a pejorative term. Exa- and, ex- ex- and, exactly. And one of the things that really ticks me off about the Democratic campaign is is neither of those people. I, I mean, I don't. And I, I, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, they they won't openly come out and say, "I'm a liberal and I'm proud of it." Yeah. And I and I always I like to. There's an example of this that that is stuck in my mind. This goes back to 1988 when when Michael Dukakis was running for president against George Senior, and he was on the on night line and and uh, Ted Koppel asked him are you a liberal and he danced around this word as if it was 
it was like being called a racist, and exactly. I would, and I and I pinpoint that point in in, in history as as a vindication <laughs> of the right wing's uh, campaign, a a, a a victory. They you could declare victory at that moment when the leading candidate a month before an election, an important election, would not admit to something that most Americans would embrace if they understood the right, term. Right, and intellectual also intellectual also has that connotation right. of, of somebody who's a snob. Yes, I got an email after I wrote a piece for the Washington Post from someone calling me an elitist, and he said, he said, I don't care if my auto mechanic doesn't know where a rock is. I only care if he knows how to fix the car. Yeah. What could be more elitist than that? Yeah. The idea that an auto mechanic, because he's an auto mechanic, can't know where other countries in the world are, <laughs> that an auto mechanic is too stupid to know such things. Right. That wasn't the idea, by the way, that this country was founded on at all. It, you should To know where Iraq is, to know that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, you don't need to be an intellectual or college grad. Graduate. This is this should be something part of our elementary and our secondary educational system. An, an elitist is somebody who thinks that auto mechanics should be stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really it's just it, it's mind boggling to. And my to, guess is that such an auto mechanic probably doesn't know where the carburetor is either. Well, right. Well, this goes back to that campaign that was waged when uh, there was an attempt to reform health care back in the nineties. The Harriet and Harry and Louise. Harry yeah. and Louise ad. This is that whole the same mode, the same words are being used today in an attempt to uh, to knock down um, Barack and Hillary to some to some extent. Well, My goodness. <laughs> yeah, look at the talk. I know a lot, and I'm proud of it. Uh, and yeah. I'm going to call you ladies and gentlemen and citizens and not folks. <laughs> and folks. Well, very <laughs> Absolutely. Very good. And, and you are an elitist, and yeah. I think you should be proud uh, of that. I, to be among the elite, to, yes. to be an intellectual to have is, is, a, is a wonderful thing. Yes. And, well, and, and, you know what? There's a difference between earned elitism and unearned elitism. Mm. Unearned elitism is what we have in, for example, a president who would never have, for instance, gotten into Yale if generations of Bushes hadn't got there. That's unearned elitism. Right. Earned elitism is people who get in there because they're smart enough to do the work. Uh-huh. Right. They excel at what they've chosen to do. Exactly. That's, that's- well, Susan Jacoby, um, time is short here. We, I'm going to have to. We're going to have to wrap this up and I look forward to seeing you at the Los Angeles uh, Book Fair next mm-hmm. weekend up at UCLA, as well as uh, uh, listening to you wherever you are. Daily Show, Colbert Report, wherever <laughs> you might be. And I want to thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is The Age of American Unreason. Susan Jacoby, thank you for being here today. Thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.